this brother um, has been a blessing to our church. He did an apologetic series for us, equipping our people to actually engage people with a different worldview. And uh, I'll tell you what, it's probably the best, and I'm not saying this because you're here, brother, but seriously, I sat in some classes, some workshops, and even did some conferences, but I, I don't think I've seen it done the way you've done it. Um, you know, and, and just the way he communicated it, the, the points he made was very, very solid and convicting. And so this brother has been already a blessing to us. We love him and his family, and so let's welcome up Mark Farnham as he comes and shares uh, for us today. It is such a joy to be here and an honor to be able to preach to you this morning. Uh, as as Lo said, if you need to get coffee, don't. It doesn't bother me because two weeks ago we were here and Los preached that epic, 58-minute sermon, and about halfway through I was thinking, would it be bad protocol if I got up from my seat and went and got coffee? Uh, I didn't, but feel free. <laughs> I teach at Lancaster Bible College. Students get up all the time to throw away their trash, walk right in front of me while I'm talking, so it does not bother me. Uh, but it is a joy to be with you. I'm glad to have my wife, Adrian here, and then friends of ours from Connecticut, church planter, uh, Ray Jones. He, like Lois, planted in his hometown and has been there 23 years now as the pastor of his church. So he and Lori are visiting in the area this weekend. We are picking up in Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. You can kill us, but you cannot hurt us. Amen. Thus wrote the second century church father, Justin Martyr, to the emperor Antoninus Pius. A few years later, after Justin defeated the cynic philosopher Crescens in a public debate, Crescens turned around and reported Justin Martyr, his last name wasn't Martyr yet, reported Justin to the Roman prefect, Rusticus, for being an atheist because he denied the Roman gods. Justin and six friends then were tried, flogged, and beheaded on June 1st, 166 AD. Once again, his famous saying, you can kill us, but you cannot hurt us. In Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 4, Jesus speaks about this danger of those who can hurt us, but warns us to not be consumed with fear of those who might attack us, hurt us, but to be more concerned about the God who has the power to cast into hell. Amen. And for believers, this same God is our loving Heavenly Father. Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 4. Jesus says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. This short passage takes place in a context of conflict. In fact, in the chapters leading up to this, Jesus has nothing but continual conflict with the religious leaders. In chapter 10, he warns his disciples of rejection. 
In chapter 10, later on, he gives his disciples authorities over demons. Chapter 10, 25 to 28, a lawyer tries to test Jesus. And then in the next chapter, chapter 11, they call Jesus the prince of demons when he casts out demons. They criticize him for not adhering to their rules, and Jesus then calls down judgment on them. A lawyer says, you've insulted us. So Jesus insults him some more. <laughs> the scribes and Pharisees press Jesus hard, we're told in the text, to incriminate, so that he would incriminate himself, say something that would be worthy of death. All this is taking place, in fact, in the chapters after this, it's continual conflict. And Jesus is making it clear that as Christians, we live in a world that if we are living as Christ called us to live, we're going to live in a world that has conflict with us. This does not mean that we should be contentious, pugnacious, always ready to fight. But the very fact that we follow Christ and we declare a message that is contrary to the world is going to bring conflict. It's going to bring trouble. And the church in America has gotten very comfortable at times with, let's just blend into the woodwork. Let's just blend into the culture. Let's follow the 11th commandment. You know what the 11th commandment is, right? Thou shalt be nice. <laughs> and, and honestly, that's how many Christians I interact with think that's really what Christ has called us to is niceness. Let's just be nice. Don't say things to people in sin. Don't bring up problems in society. Just love people and let the chips fall where they may. That's not the message Jesus gave his disciples and followers. So I want you to notice in this passage, I want to encourage you with three things this morning. This passage is teaching us that we should not be ensnared by the fear of man because God controls all and cares for us. We should not be ensnared with the fear of man because God controls all and cares for us. First of all, in verses 4 and 5, Jesus says, Don't be afraid of those who can kill your body, but fear him who can cast into hell. Let a robust view of God's absolute authority and sovereign control overwhelm your fear of man. That is, we are tempted sometimes to be afraid of what people can do for us or do to us. Uh, and we're fearful. When I teach on apologetics, I, I sometimes will say, now ask yourself, what, what is the fear that keeps you from talking to people about Christ? I mean, really analyze. What are you afraid of? Are you afraid they're going to punch you in the face? I honestly haven't heard too many occasions, at least in America, where that kind of thing happens. In other countries, our brothers and sisters suffer great persecution. But, but what really are we afraid of? Are we afraid that they'll laugh at us? That they'll scorn us, that they will uh, slander us, that they'll say, oh, you're a, you're a religious nutcase. Really, what, what do we really fear is going to happen to us? And we stop to think about it. We should ask ourselves, what, what am I afraid of to talk to people about Christ? What am I afraid of to live with my convictions in my workplace? To speak the truth to my family when we gather? What am, I, am, I, am I afraid of being cut off? Well, that is a hard thing. But this passage is teaching us that we need to let this robust, full view of God's absolute authority and sovereignty over all things overwhelm our fear of man. How do you do that? Well, it starts with getting a vision of God that, that correctly um, magnifies his greatness. 
That is, sometimes we have this small view of God. God's way up there, far, far away. And in real emergencies, he can come through. We've seen it in the Bible. But, uh, you know, other than that, he commands us to do things, and, and that's really what God's all about. Rather, what we ought to do is have this all-consuming vision of God as the loving creator of the world who has done all things for the benefit of humanity, for the goodness of humanity, so that we might give glory to God. And he is a God of infinite beauty and infinite glory. Every attribute of God is infinite. God's love is infinite. God's power is infinite. As it was just read before, Moses says, I want to see your glory. God essentially says, you can't and live. God dwells in unapproachable light. So God says, I'll show you my goodness. And what was the effect on Moses when he saw the goodness of God? His face had a supernatural glow to it, just looking at the goodness of God. But he wasn't even allowed to behold the glory of God because it would kill us. Turn over to Psalm 111 really quickly. I'm going to have you turn a lot of places this morning. So get your Bibles out or get your scrolling going. I'm not the pastor of this church, so I, I, I won't tell you that you should have a paper Bible in front of you if you really want to know the scriptures well, but that shows my age as well as anything. Psalm 111, verse 1, praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. I love the next verse. Great are the works of the Lord studied by all who delight in them. So you will never get this overwhelming vision of God if you don't get into the word and study the great works of God. See who he is. I didn't really know my wife the day we got married compared to now. I did know her. Don't think this was like an arranged, you know... Bride by mail kind of thing. It wasn't that. I thought I knew her. But now, 34 years later, I know her and appreciate and see the glory of all that she is. In the same way, we will never truly be consumed with the glory of God unless we're in the word, studying the works of God, what he has done and who he is. See, Jesus' power over nature is a simple thing. Mark chapter 4, the disciples are in the boat with Jesus. They're crossing the Sea of Galilee. I love the little note in the text. So they took him. The disciples took Jesus. They thought they were in control. And they get into the, the, sea, into the boat, crossing the Sea of Galilee, and within a short time, the boat is literally full of water, which, if you know anything about boats, it's not supposed to be that way, right? Water on the outside, air on the inside. They're going under. These are experienced fishermen. Peter, James, John, and Andrew grew up on that lake, fished all their lives, and they are terrified. And they go and they wake up Jesus because he's asleep, and what do they say? Master, don't you care that we are dying? Have you ever felt that way? God, don't you care about what I'm going through? God, do you have any idea of the struggle, the suffering, the terror, the pain, the fear, the lament, the grief? And Jesus stands up and with just a word, peace, be still. And just like that, the raging storm ended and there was just a gentle lapping of the water against the boat. And we're told in the text, at that point, the disciples whose fear was aimed this way turned and now they're terrified of, the, of God in the boat with them. And they say, what manner of man is this who commands the wind and seas to obey? 
Study God's control of human beings. Psalm 2 says that the kings of the nations rage against God. Let's, let's overthrow God. They get together and they plot and God sits in the heavens and laughs. Proverbs 21 verse 1 says, The king's heart is a stream that God channels where he wants. There's not a single political ruler in this world that is not being manipulated by God's desire. Sometimes for judgment on people, sometimes for the good of people, but they're all under God's control. We are not, as followers of Christ, helpless people at the mere whims of human evil. We are under the sovereign control of God, who, who uses world leaders, the most powerful people in the world, to do what he wants them to do. One of my favorite lines in the Westminster Confession of Faith 3.1 says this, God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. My wife reminded me that four years ago, last week, uh, they discovered a brain tumor in my head. And four, weeks ago, four years ago, next week, they discovered a mass in my stomach, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. So four years ago, our world was turned upside down. Went through about eight months of chemotherapy, multiple hospitalizations, surgeries, thought I was going to die, and God raised me up. And the one thing that kept me going through all of that was the realization, this is ordained by God for my good. Some people don't like that. Well, God allowed it, or the devil's doing that to you. No, God ordained this for my good, and if he wants, he can deliver me. Cancer has no power over me. Amen. And by God's grace, he did raise me up. But God, by the sovereign uh, working of his will, unchangeably ordains whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so, as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. That is, we are responsible for our sins, and yet God ordains all things that come to pass, and we can rest in that. We also need to, in addition to developing a robust view of God's power and sovereignty, we need to properly account for the puny power of man. Truth is, people can do awful, terrifying things to us. We haven't seen the movie yet, but Tuesday we're going to see Sound of Freedom about the child trafficking, world global ring of child trafficking. Evil is done on a scale that you and I cannot imagine. And yet God will bring someday all things into judgment. People can genuinely harm us in so many ways. Some of you know that. Some of you know what it's like to suffer at the hands of other people. And while we do fear that, Jesus is saying, don't be consumed by fear of that because the one who can cast those people into hell is the one who's really in charge. Don't be afraid of people who can harm you and that's all they can do. Because you have an eternal soul if you're a child of God, if you put your faith in Christ. Your future is secure. Your eternal state is secure. John Calvin says this, Christ is perfectly right when he urges his disciples to despise death because human beings created for heavenly immortality should treat this mutable and perishing life as so much smoke. 
The heart of the matter is this. If the believers consider to what end they were born and what their condition now is, they will have no reason for clinging anxiously to this earthly life. However, these words have a still fuller and richer meaning for Christ teaches us the fear, uh, that the fear of God is dead in people who fear tyrants so much that they fail in their confession, that a brutish stupidity reigns in the hearts of those who fear death so much that they will not even hesitate to give up altogether confessing their faith. We're not confronted with that, are we? No one's going to, any time this week, corner you, put a gun to your head, and say, deny Christ or I'm going to kill you. This is not happening in our country. It is happening around the world. Do we fear God so much? Is he our focus and concern that we would say to that person, do your best. All you can do is kill me. You can kill me, but you can't hurt me. Now, this is not a command not to feel fear. Fear is a very real, normal, natural reaction to things that we encounter. It is a command not to let that fear settle into your soul and make you forget the power of God over the people who terrify you. Some of you might be in a very terrifying situation right now, and, and as believers, we want to help you through that. The point, however, is to realize that person terrifying you is like this to God. They have zero power. God controls all. Scripture acknowledges the real danger of persecution for our faith. In Hebrews 11, remember it talks about the end of the chapter, all the people God delivered, and right in the middle of the verse, it says, and some were cut in half. Some died by the sword. We have no guarantee that we won't suffer. But God is in control even of that. We also need to remember in this passage the end of wicked people. Jesus says, fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast you into hell. So in this passage, there are two senses of the word fear being used. First is the slavish fear that terrifies, right? We're, we're afraid of other people. And this is what Jesus is saying is don't let that fear of someone else settle in your heart and soul and redirect the things that you do. Ask yourself, does fear of a person's reaction keep me from telling the truth? Do I truly confess my sin to others? Or am I so fearful of what they might think of me that I kind of keep that sin to myself? I'll, I'll fight it on my own. Satan loves when we keep things secret in isolation. Does the fear of others keep you from testifying about Christ? Well, I don't want to be, I don't want my coworkers to think I'm a religious nut, so I'll, I'll, just, be, I'll just be nice when we have real opportunities to share Christ. This fear keeps us from doing the right thing because we don't want to displease people. Let me ask you a question. Whose opinion or judgment do you worry about? Who are you worried about is going to have a bad opinion of you? Your mom and dad? Your friends, your coworkers, people at church? Fear of man, we're told in Proverbs, is a snare. Uh, that is, it is something that captures us and catches us and keeps us from doing what is right. Here's another good question. Who are you trying to impress? 
I don't have my phone up here with me, but how many people, their online presence is all about, I want people to admire my life. I want people to be, they would never say this, envious of what I have. I want people to think I have the most perfect children, most perfect vacation, most perfect house, most perfect life, or I want people to love me and, and lavish likes upon me. It sounds so crass, we'd be embarrassed to say that, but the way we use technology many times, that is exactly what we're doing. We are afraid two things. People will think poorly of us, or people won't think about us at all. So our social media lives are all about trying to get people impressed. Jesus can free you from that by saying, don't worry about what people think. Think about what God thinks about you. Fearing God is, so there's the slavish fear to man, God says here, but fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Fearing God is a reverent fear that emboldens. See, fear of God is acknowledging his greatness, his authority, his sovereignty, his lordship over your life. The realization that I don't deserve anything from God. I have not earned his grace and favor. It is all of mercy. And God is not someone to be trifled with. If you've been saved for any amount of time, you know that, right? God is not to be trifled with. Galatians tells us, don't be deceived. Don't kid yourself. God will not be mocked. Whatever you sow, you will reap. God keeps perfect records. There will never be a scandal in heaven where God cooked the books so that people don't get what they deserve. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ as your Savior... If there's ever been a time you've acknowledged fully to God, I am a sinner undeserving of your favor, and I cast myself on the mercy of Christ who died to pay for the price of my sins, my friend, you ought to be afraid of the one who can cast you into hell. But God is a merciful God, and he has sent Christ to die to pay the price of our sins so that we can be forgiven. So the end result is not a God who ends with judgment, but a God of judgment who then offers salvation. Have you put your faith in Christ? You can do it today. You can confess to God, I am a sinner in need of a Savior, and I believe Jesus is the one who paid the price for me. And the moment you do, you are forgiven. You are united with Christ. And you are his forever. So secondly... Secondly, let God's steadfast love and covenantal commitment to you give you boldness and security. Notice there's kind of a strange break in the text here. He's talking about casting into hell. And then right after that, he starts talking about how valuable you are. Right. Well, is there something missing? Is there a textual emendation here or something? No. God is moving from those who ought to fear him those who are under judgment, to now you who are God's children. Know who you are. Let God's steadfast love and covenantal commitment to you give you boldness and security. See, our standing with God because of Christ alleviates our fears of being vulnerable and unprotected. I might be in a situation in life where I am vulnerable and unprotected and others can harm me. But when it comes to my standing with God, when it comes to my eternal state my eternal soul god gives us several wonderful reminders in this text notice in verse four i tell you my friends 
I tell you, my friends, a little bit further down in verse 32, fear not, little flock. Now, there's a lot of little children here. I have seven grandkids, and recently they are all here at once. Hence, I've aged 10 years over the last few weeks. Because <laughs> seven kids, seven and under, will wear you out. But how do we treat those children like little precious ones? Now, sometimes they need discipline, but when they're not disobeying, we are loving and hugging and playing. God loves you if you've put your faith in Christ. You've been transferred from wrath and judgment to grace and mercy and love. It's easy to forget that we are the beloved children of the Creator and King of Kings. And I love the illustration here. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Now, here's an interesting thing. If you go to the other Gospels, it talks about two sparrows are sold for a farthing or a penny. So two sparrows are sold for a penny. Another two sparrows are sold for a penny. They were worth so little that if you, if you threw in, if you bought two, so two for a penny, two for a penny, they'd throw in an extra one just to make sure you were okay. Just to make sure that, you know, here, here's a bonus. It's like going to, you know, you buy a dozen donuts at the donut shop, you give you 13, right? Yeah. In other words, <laughs> there's a voice of experience right there. In other words, sparrows were so cheap. And what does it say, though? But God has not forgotten a single one. I did a quick search. There's between 100 and 400 billion birds in the world. The average lifespan of a bird across all the species is about 10 years. Some only live a year or two, some live 50 or 60 years. So do the math. We'll take 100, million, 100 billion birds. I figured at least every second, 10 birds have to be dying. 10 birds a second. Every second for an entire year for all of human history, birds are dying. And what does it say? Not one of them falls without your father knowing. Birds are essentially worthless because there's so many of them. And what is the message here? We are reminded that we are worth so much more than birds. Even if we are imprisoned or banished or rejected by friends and abandoned family, we are not forgotten by God. You are not forgotten by God. It may feel like it sometimes. Turn over to Psalm 56, verses 8 through 11. Psalm 56, 8 through 11, reminds us of how precious every one of us is to God. If you're here today and you say, Mark, I'm a nobody. Everywhere I go, people forget my name. Uh, I blend into the crowd. If I was in a room full of five, five people, no one would remember that I was there. I'm a nobody. That's not true when it comes to God. Psalm 56, verse 8, you have kept count of my tossings. God knows how many times you roll over in bed from worrying. You put my tears in a bottle. Are they not in your book? God keeps a scrapbook of every tear you cry. That's how much detail he has in his care for you. Then my enemies will turn back in this day when I call. This I know that God is for me. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Oh, oh that, isn't that wonderful? 
Because people can do awful things to us, and God says, I will not forget one second of your mistreatment at the hands of other people, because you are my child. God is our Father. So important. My dad was a messed up person. He grew up in an orphanage in western Connecticut. When he was four years old, his mother dropped him and his older sister and his younger sister, five and two, off at the orphanage, and then just went back home. They had three more kids and dropped them off at the orphanage a few years later. My dad grew up not knowing what it was to be loved, suffered horrible abuse. If you can imagine an unregulated state orphanage in the 1930s and 40s. Horrendous abuse. He meets my mom, they're eight years apart, my mom's 19, they get married. It's a disaster from the beginning. My dad's sleeping around. I have a half-brother I've never met. But somehow, by God's grace, God gave my dad enough sense to be a loving dad. A dad who said, I love you, and put his arms around me and says, I'm proud of you. Protected me. I never felt afraid when my dad was around. My dad was a fearsome person. He grew up scrapping to stay alive. He eventually became a championship power lifter and a stonemason, hands like leather, muscles like bowling balls. So there were several times in my life we were in dangerous positions. Didn't bother me at all. We had a Boston Red Sox game one time. I grew up in Connecticut. And there were two drunk college football players behind us, spilling their beer, swearing. My dad said, turned around and said, you guys knock it off. Two of them. I said, what are you going to do about it? My dad just stood up, peeled off his sweatshirt. <laughs> said, if you don't sit down, I'm going to rip your heads off. <laughs> and these two guys just sat down very meekly. <laughs> and as a little child, I was really afraid of these guys. Are they going to beat up my dad, not knowing my dad would do whatever it took? So as a little child, physically weak, I always felt safe because this loving father who had, to me, infinite power was always there. That's what every one of us has. Amen. Amen. You have a God who will not let anything touch you unless it's in his will. That's right. And there are some thorny issues in there. I, I'm well aware of that. But not, we need to be reminded that we are protected by God. But not only that, our worth, notice the, the last part of verse 7. Uh, you are much more valuable than many sparrows. Our worth, brothers and sisters, is entirely outside of us. But the world tells us your worth is dependent upon what you do and who you are. Our worth is in the fact that we are made in God's image and we are someone for whom Christ died. We are the bride of Christ, beloved, precious, cleansed, glorious. Vodi Bauckham says this, the gospel is not about how special you are. We, we turn the gospel in the United States to a person-centered or man-centered message. Yeah. God wants to make you happy. God wants to give you all these things. God wants to give you self-esteem and, and make you feel good about yourself and give you prosperity. My worth is not in my performance of God's law. We need to hear that. If you're here today and you're thinking, man, I just really blew it this week. Wow. What a week of sin and failure. If we dwell in our performance, 
It will drive us from the loving arms of God. Why? Because when we sin, we feel worthless. We fall into this vicious cycle of sin, avoiding God, falling further. I don't want to go see God. He must be so disappointed in me. It's so important that we learn that when we sin, we go right to the Father. And we confess sin. And we don't have to wonder, will he take us back? Because he has promised. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I need that message every week. Because every day, every hour. Because my sin makes me feel worthless. And I need to not dwell on that. Again, another thing my dad did, my parents did, that's like, I don't know how, my family is so messed up, but somehow they got this right. When I would do wrong, they would discipline me painfully. Then they would talk to me about what I'd done. Then they would hug me, and life would go on. Discipline, instruct, embrace, reassure. So when it came time for me to transfer my allegiance and my submission and my authority to God, it was easy because my parents, I knew if I do wrong, discipline. And then love and immediate restoration. Parents, how you discipline your kids is so critical. You get mad and yell at them and then give them the silent treatment, that's how they think God will deal with their sin. You fail to discipline them, don't be surprised if they grow up to be hellions. Because they will think God just loves me and will let me do whatever I want. No, discipline needs to be consistent. It needs to be focused on disobedience, correction, instruction, then reassurance. My worth is not in my possessions. I don't know if you've ever heard the song, My Worth is Not in What I Own. I'll try to hurry here. But the author says this, my worth is not in what I own, not in the strength of flesh and bone, but in the costly wounds of love at the cross. My worth is not in skill or name, in win or lose, in pride or shame, but in the blood of Christ that flowed at the cross. As summer flowers, we fade and die. Fame, youth and beauty hurry by, but life eternal calls to us at the cross. I will not boast in wealth or might or human wisdom's fleeting light but I will boast in knowing Christ at the cross. Two wonders here that I confess, my worth and my unworthiness, my value fixed, my ransom paid at the cross, and I will rejoice in my Redeemer, greatest treasure, wellspring of my soul. I will trust in him, no other. My soul is satisfied in him alone. Where do you find your sense of self-worth? Paul Tripp says this, if we do not receive our identity vertically, we will shop for it horizontally. Right? If my identity is not entirely determined by who God says I am in Christ, forgiven, beloved, a child of the king, a citizen of the heaven, if that's not how I think about myself, and let me tell you, you've got to preach this to yourself because you will forget it. If you listen to yourself, you'll hear the words, you are so worthless. You are such a loser. God's not going to take you back. You did that for the 1,000th time. Or alternately, you're something special. You're great. Everyone loves you. Both of those are false messages. If you don't get your identity vertically, you will shop for it 
horizontally from other people. Think about a podcast that I listened to recently from a, from a Christian woman who is a well-known Christian leader. It was all about self-love. She said, I need to honor the past versions of myself. I need to learn to love myself. She says, I celebrate every version of myself. You know what that is? That is a false gospel of self. And it will drive you into the ground trying to feed it. It will eat you alive trying to feed it. See, God says your worth is determined by what I say. Take the smallest thing. God says, I pay attention to every bird. Every second, birds are falling to the ground all over the world. And God says, I know about everyone. Don't you think you're more valuable to me than birds? The self-care movement is a counterfeit gospel that says focus on yourself. Now, it's good to have leisure. It's good to take care of yourself. It's good to go on vacation and take rest. All that's good. But the self-care movement that we live with today is all about you focusing on you, neglecting other people. You know what the greatest piece of advice I can give you? Stop thinking about yourself. Stop thinking about yourself. Puritan Thomas Brooks said, Ah, you lamenting souls who spend your days in sighing and groaning under the sense and burden of your sins. Why do you deal so unkindly with God and so injuriously with your own souls as not to cast an eye upon those precious promises of remission of sin, which may bear up and refresh your spirits in the darkest night and under the heaviest burden of sin? That is, focusing on your virtues or your vices is not where we ought to dwell. We need to be regularly repenting of sin. But Robert Murray McShane, a young Scottish pastor who died at 29, said this, Learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. For every look at yourself, look at yourself, examine yourself. Say, Lord, is there any hidden sin in me? Is there anything I need to confess? But don't dwell there. You'll either get depressed or you'll get self-righteous. Yeah, I'm pretty good. Better than most of you, I think, you know. Like that's the way we start to think. Rather, look at your sin through the lens of Scripture, but then look to Christ. Finally, in this text, let the example of Jesus guide us. See, we are told, don't be fearful of man that keeps you from doing what you ought to do. Remember how valuable you are in God's sight. Look to Christ. He refused to fear even those who killed him. Read the Gospels with a focus on how does Jesus respond to power? He's unafraid. They're going to kill him in one of the worst ways imaginable. And they're going to prolong the torture over many, many hours. And yet when Jesus confronts these people, he does it in a way that shows no fear whatsoever. He was unafraid in his boldness, addressing the most controversial issues of his day and addressing the most powerful people in his world with the truth that saves. So he calls us to do the same. He turned away those who wanted him for temporary gain. John chapter 6 he said, he said hard things, and it says, from that time on, many stopped following him. He was not afraid even to offend those he loved when necessary. Right? right? What does he say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. 
And then a short time later, Peter, to you have given the keys to the kingdom of heaven. You're the rock and you're going to be the, the apostle who leads the church when the spirit comes. Jesus knew who he was and whose he was. Every single time he references God, except one, he calls God Father. What does that say? Jesus thought of himself exclusively in terms of, I am a child of the king. I am a child of God, my father. The one time he says God is on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When hell, our hell that we deserve, is poured out upon him and he endures the wrath of God on our behalf, he took all my sin that I deserve to suffer for and he bore it. And the Father poured it upon him and Jesus calls him God. Their divine essence is not broken. That's not possible. But in that moment, God treated Jesus like a rebellious sinner. And not just one rebellious sinner, but all rebellious sinners from all time. He suffered on our behalf. Jesus' identity was rooted in God's mission for him. Jesus entrusted himself to God's care, even in his suffering. Let me tell you, one of the hardest things to do when you're suffering is to say, Lord, whatever you want. Whatever you want. I can tell you, our, our, our journey through cancer four years ago totally changed my wife and me. We came to the point of absolute surrender. We have zero control. Zero control. God, you can, you can take me and there's nothing I can do. If I'm raised up, it's purely by your grace. That is our position, our condition every day of our lives. So learning to live with open hands and saying, God, whatever you want with my life, that's how Jesus lived his life. I love 1 Peter 2, so turn over there very quickly. We're almost finished. 1 Peter chapter 2. This is the way Jesus viewed himself in the hands of the Father. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Verse 22, 1 Peter 2, 22. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued, notice the word, entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You and I, in Christ, have someone who's watching constantly for our souls. Turn over one page to 1 Peter chapter 4. In light of this, Peter says, now when we suffer, 1 Peter 4, 19, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will, same word, entrust their souls to the faithful creator while doing good. By the way, that word entrust, you know where else it's used? It's used in Luke 23, 46, when Jesus says, into your hands, I entrust my spirit. That is the way we live in a world that is hostile, in a world that is, in, that is broken. We trust the Father who gave us what we needed, a Redeemer. Yeah. And we trust Him for everything else. Amen. 
and we give ourselves into his hands. Jesus was cast into hell so that we would never have to be. The Apostles' Creed said he descended into hell. That's that suffering on the cross, enduring our judgment. So this passage here in Luke 12 is not written as a warning to Christians. Don't fear man, but fear God, it can throw you into hell. Because as believers, that is not a possibility. That is a warning to those who harm you. We may die for our faith, but that is all that can be done against us. You can kill us, but you can't harm us. In 155 AD, an old man who had been a disciple of John the Apostle was being taken from the, into the arena when a voice came to him from heaven, be strong, Polycarp, and play the man. No one saw who had spoken, but our brothers who were there heard the voice, said, said the commentator. When the crowd heard that Polycarp, the bishop of Smyrna, had been captured, there was an uproar. The proconsul asked him whether he was Polycarp. On hearing that he was, he tried to persuade him to apostatize, give up the faith, saying, have respect for your old age, swear by the fortune of Caesar, repent and say, down with the atheists. Polycarp looked grimly at the wicked heathen multitude around him, and gesturing toward them, he said, down with the atheists. Swear, urged the proconsul, reproach Christ and I will set you free. Polycarp said, 86 years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? I have wild animals here, the proconsul said. I will throw you to them if you do not repent. Call them, Polycarp replied. It is unthinkable for me to repent from what is good to turn to what is evil. I will be glad, though, to be changed from evil to righteousness. If you despise the animals, I will have you burned, warned the proconsul. You threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and is then extinguished. But you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why are you waiting? Bring on whatever you want. Let's pray. Oh God, we live in scary times. We may suffer persecution. We may encounter fearful things, but I pray we would not be consumed with fear of others, fear of man, but to be caught up with the greatness of who you are. That we might think of ourselves exclusively through what Christ has done for us, what you have declared us to be, so that we will live boldly we will live unafraid of the consequences and proclaim Christ as he himself proclaimed the truth to us. Give us the strength.